Good evening, everyone. I feel like the tech is really against us tonight. Not only was the projector flashing on and off, we suddenly had a blast of air that came from above. Anything could happen from this point on. So I'm going to press on. Now, we're in our last session in uh, the studies on Proverbs. And um, I don't know if they've got them on the screen. So if you can get hold of one of these, if you don't have one, stick your hand up. And I'm sure somebody will bring one to you. And we're in the back uh, page. Don't know what page it is. Planning. It's near the back anyway. And we're thinking about planning and guidance. Now, um, I wonder what you do when you have to make a major decision. What do you what do? You, do? you know, you've got to make a, a, a big decision, not just what am I going to have for breakfast, but something significant. I once asked a group of people, what do you do when you have to make a major decision? And they, their responses were really interesting. The first word they said was panic. And then they said, pray, pass out, plot, pause, and patiently wait. Now, the fact that all these answers began with the letter P might lead you to conclude that I was talking to a group of Baptist preachers. But in fact, it was a bunch of ordinary Christians who met as a church small group called a life group. Uh, life is full of decisions, isn't it? From what to eat to what job to do, from what to wear to whether you should marry and who, from how to spend your evening to how to spend your money, from what to do on the weekend to what to do with the rest of your life. Life is full of decisions. Decisions, decisions, decisions. They can be so crucial, can't they? And the bigger the decision, sometimes the more paralyzing it can feel. We find ourselves overwhelmed with options. I feel like the world has got more and more options now. Or we just feel frustrated by an apparent lack of direction. Now, some people, when they're faced with a decision, go into a kind of intense research mode. They analyze every possible outcome. They maybe set up some sort of spreadsheet. Some of you here, I know, are long-term, every eventuality planners. But that can lead you to be anxious, can't it? Or to paralysis by analysis. Others of us are like the famous ostrich. Now, contrary to popular belief, apparently, ostriches don't bury their head in the sand when they're threatened. But when an ostrich senses danger and can't run away, it flops to the ground and remains still with its head and neck flat on the ground in front of it. Just sort of goes... <laughs> now, that's kind of my approach to making decisions. Quick, do nothing. Now, over the summer, we've been studying this book of Proverbs, and we're on a quest for the search for wisdom. And wisdom has been defined as the skill of living well. And we need this skill to enjoy life and live as we should in God's world. Uh, we want to develop deeper character and be refined. We want to live well, and therefore we need wisdom. And as we go through life, we find that life is very rarely cut and dried, black and white. It doesn't have a, a rule book. There's many, many shades of gray. There's, we need wisdom to figure out what to do. And Proverbs is the Bible's goldmine of wisdom. This is the place to become a profound person. We have just scratched the surface 
in these eight sessions. You could mine it for the rest of your life and never exhaust it. And I'm not exaggerating. We've looked at Proverbs wisdom for work, listening, speaking, friendship, emotions, and parenting. But tonight we're going to end our journey with the wise sages of Proverbs, at least for now. And we're asking, where will we get guidance for the rest of our lives? And the first answer might surprise you. It's that we need to make plans. Look at uh, the top there, chapter 21, verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. You see the the contrast between the two lines? In the first line, we read that the plans of the diligent lead them to profit. And profit means plenty, abundance, prosperity, having, having more than enough. The diligent person, it's saying, the person who's careful and hardworking will have more than enough to live on. They're in profit. They can afford to be generous. They don't have to worry. But the contrast is the second person on the second line who actually ends up in scarcity, in poverty. And the difference in this proverb is this. The first one plans and the second one doesn't. The second person is hasty which means they act too quick. They act with excessive speed. They rush. They are impulsive. They don't think things through. They act on the spur of the moment. They rush into things without enough consideration. And Proverbs, the whole book, warns us against being too hasty. Uh, In chapter 19, verse 2, it says that acting hastily makes poor choices. Chapter 28, verse 20, trying to get rich quick leads to disaster. Chapter 29, verse 20, being hasty with your words is foolish. Now, this is not telling us to become very ponderous, you know, sort of a slow coach, but to approach life with care and consideration and planning. And the same idea is put forward right at the end of the book of Proverbs. The last chapter, Proverbs 31, is full of a marvelous picture of the woman of excellence, She's called the woman of excellence, sometimes called the wife of noble character. And this woman embodies wisdom in her sphere of influence and responsibility. She is a wife and a mother. She manages a household with great skill and wisdom. She manages people and stuff from food to textiles to the way the place is run to the servants. The home she creates is well managed and it's a place of joy and strength and peace for other people. And then in chapter 31, verse 25, it says this. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. Wouldn't you like to do that? She can laugh at the days to come. And what that's saying is that wise planning leads to confidence for the future. Would we like to laugh at the days to come? Then we need to learn how to make wise plans. And so our first point tonight is wise and foolish planning. Look at the first two Proverbs here and notice what differentiates wise from foolish planning. The first one, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. Now, wise planning seeks advice from wise people. 
The key difference highlighted here is that plans based on a wide-ranging set of advisors tend to succeed and bring victory. Wise people will seek advice, but fools don't because they're convinced that they know best. They're always wise in their own eyes. Why would they need to listen to anyone else? So why does having many advisors help us make good plans? If we only listen to one or two close people, we're much more likely just to talk to people who already agree with us. We're inclined to pick people who, who pretty much already share our point of view. And sometimes, you know, we do ask people for advice, but what we're really looking for is confirmation of what we have already decided. Can I ask for your advice? What I'm really saying is, can you give me a green light on something I'm going to do? <laughs> And also, if you have many advisors, you're going to have a range. They're going to bring in wisdom from different perspectives. Some of them will be outside the normal box. They will see things that we have never seen. They're more likely to challenge our plans and our preconceptions. I reached out to a wise friend for advice some time ago, and he wrote back and said, you can be assured of my prayers and honest counsel. Honest counsel is someone who is prepared to say, I don't think you should do that. I think you need to think more carefully about this. And I have to say, I've said it here before at least once, I'm always amazed in church when people make really big decisions without consulting a wide range of advisors. Why would we think that was wise? Perhaps because we don't want to hear objections. Proverbs says, actively seek advice Get all the advice you can, have the humility to listen to other points of view, and that will help wise planning. But there's an important caveat here. It's that you also have to choose your advisors carefully. Have a look at the next proverb. The plans of the righteous are just, but the advice of the wicked is deceitful. Now, what's this getting at? We may have many advisors and I'm sure we would always ask intelligent people, but not all of them are to be fully trusted. Plans fail because of lack of counsel. Sorry, uh, the plans of the righteous are just, but the advice of the wicked is deceitful. Their motives are actually impure. Their advice, although it might look clever, will lead to a bad choice. The alarming thing is that such advice is actually quite convincing. It's deceitful. It tends to take you in. So we could be easily convinced. Now, the Bible is full of examples of such advice. One of the most uh, saddening is Solomon's son. Solomon was the guy that put together the Proverbs. He was renowned for his wisdom, but it didn't pass on to the next generation. His son, Rehoboam, was appointed king in uh, the first king's Book of 1 Kings, chapter 12. And Rehoboam consulted with the elders of the people about how he should rule. And the elders in that culture were the respected senior leadership from among the tribes and the people. So they would often be older individuals who'd lived a long time and had gained respect and dignity over years of experience. And they said to Rehoboam, if today you will be a servant to these people, and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. See, they're commending servant leadership. 
But Rehoboam rejected that advice from the elders, and he consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. These are his friends. And he said to them, what's your advice? How should we answer the people? Because the people are saying to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us. And here's what the young men said. These people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. This sounds like a mafia boss, doesn't it? My little finger, I'm such a big guy. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I'm going to make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Heavy. Uh, assertive, aggressive. We would probably say toxic masculinity. See, Rehoboam chose the advice of his peers. It's what he wanted to hear. It flattered his ego, and it made him feel like the big man. And as a result, he blew it, and he lost the support of all the people. We must learn to discriminate between our advisors. We must learn to discern between the bad, the good, and the best courses of action. How do we do it? Now, for the very last time, I'm going to recommend <laughs> the book, The Way of Wisdom, which over 100 people have bought now. So I'm really encouraged we're getting God's word into our homes and our daily lives with this wonderful resource by Tim and Kathy Keller. And on page 229, they uh, recommend uh, seven steps to, uh, to discern good courses of action. Firstly, seek much advice from other people. Secondly, choose the best course in light of Scripture. Thirdly, seek the opinion of authorities in family, church, and society. Fourthly, check your conscience. Fifthly, examine your motives. Sixthly, ask what is the best use of my gifts for God's kingdom. And seventh, assess your decision's impact on other people. There's a lot of good wisdom there, isn't there? Now notice what that advice didn't say. It didn't say, pray about it. That's interesting. Is that a bit scandalous? Now, every decision should be covered in prayer, and so should our whole lives, submitted to God. But you have to make the choice. You have to make the plan. And what we tend to do when we have big plans to make or big decisions is ask God to make the decision for us. Sometimes we say, I've prayed about it and I feel that such and such a thing is what he wants me to do. But we haven't gone through any of those steps. That isn't God's guidance, you know. That's just what you want. We need to seek advice from others, choose the best course in light of Scripture, seek the opinion of authorities, check our conscience, examine our motives, assess what's the best use of our gifts for God's kingdom, assess our impact of our decision on other people, and pray. You see... God won't write the plan for you. He wants his children to grow into mature adults and make wise decisions, not needing to be spoon-fed and led by the hand all the time. So what we need in life, and this might be a bit, a bit controversial, let me say it, what we need in life is not more direct words from God, which remove our responsibility to make wise plans. What we need is more sanctified common sense. As the next verse shows, Put your outdoor work in order and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. What's that about? That's like one of those Yoda kind of statements. Oh, yeah. Put your outdoor work in order. Get your fields ready. 
After that, build your house. Now, it's a rural economy. Your income is determined by the productivity of your fields, and that's it. You don't have a penny that you don't earn from your fields. So this verse is saying, get all the work outside and the farm and the fields ready. Figure out what you're going to make. Work out how much income you're going to have before you start building a house. Because you might not be able to afford that big house. It's practical. It means plan carefully. Common sense. Common sense isn't as common as they think. You know, it is foolish to set your heart on a certain lifestyle and try to get it when you simply can't afford it. We knew a woman in Manchester, and this kind of thing happens in Manchester all the time, who bought a Gucci handbag but couldn't actually afford the next month's mortgage payment. Because everyone looks, you look great with the handbag. No one knows you just defaulted. It's foolish to set your heart on a kind of lifestyle that you can't afford. You will not have the ability to support yourself and sustain the lifestyle. You will cause stress to you and everybody else. Now, this kind of thing is absolutely rampant in our culture, and it's fueled by wonderful marketing that appeals to our desires, and it's fueled by easily available credit. Many people get themselves into terrible debt and live in chaos because they built the house before they worked up how much income was coming from the fields. Be wise. That's what it's saying. We don't need more direct words from God. He's already spoken to us in the Bible. We need more sanctified common sense. How do we make wise plans? Seek a lot of advice. Be discerning about who's saying it. And plan very, very carefully. But there is something that's actually even more fundamental than the kind of plans we make. It is the kind of people we are. Point two, the planner, not the plan. If the most important thing about our plans was careful planning, that would be one thing. But Proverbs doesn't talk so much about how God guides as who God guides. Notice in chapter 6, verse 18, where the, the, the evil scheme comes from. Chapter 6, verse 18. A heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil. Now, this is in a list of things that God really hates. It's the heart that devises the bad plans. The heart is the center of the person, the core of who you are. It's the motivational center. It's like the, uh, the cockpit, the control center of your whole existence. And as we've said before many times, in the Bible, the heart thinks, the heart makes decisions, and the heart feels. So it's not just head and heart. The heart is the real you. So it's much more important, this is saying, to pay attention to the kind of person that you are becoming over time than just the decisions that you make. We need to go deeper than just the plan. We need to think, what's going on in my heart? Next verse, chapter 16, verse 2. All of a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. That is an amazing proverb. All of my ways seem pure to me, but the Lord's weighing my motives. Our ways can seem fine to us. They usually are. We may appear to be making the right choice, but the Lord is looking on the heart and weighing the motive. And even our finest moments, you know, can be tainted by self-interest, self-centeredness, and pride. 
I took a preaching class uh, at Theological College with, with one of the legends of American preaching from the last generation. His name was Dr. Haddon Robinson. He wrote the, one of the greatest books on preaching of the 20th century. And he taught the class at the age of 79. And he was so experienced, he could actually teach the entire class without a single note. And it was word perfect. It was just wonderful to be around him. And at one point in the middle of the course, he just stopped. He kind of looked up into the middle distance. And he said, <clears throat> you know, sometimes I wonder if I've made a single decision in my life with a completely pure motive. 79-year-old godly man. I wonder if I've made a single decision with a completely pure motive. We need to pay attention to what's going on in our hearts. Why are we drawn to certain things? Why does something occupy so much of your time and attention and your desire? Why does that decision appeal to you so much more than that one? What's really going on under the water, the surface of the water? We all need to do some heart work if we're going to grow as people of integrity. The next verse says this, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. And then it carries on, chapter 12, verse 20, deceit is in the hearts of those who plot evil, but those who promote peace have joy. Now these verses draw attention to the fact that we must develop our character, our integrity, our desire for peace, because that is the thing that will guide good choices. You notice that? I think we tend to imagine that good choices is about basically figuring it out. You know, a kind of uh, cognitive, mental, intellectual process and getting good inputs. And of course, all of that is true. But this is going down to the moral level, the character level. It's the integrity of an upright person that guides them. It's the person who promotes peace who has joy. So integrity is wholeness. You're the same on the inside as the outside. There's no falseness. There's no pretending to be someone that you're not. Now, it is a long path and a lot of hard work to develop and grow in integrity and a righteous character. But these are qualities that Proverbs says God will use to guide us. It's no use praying for God to guide you and asking for some sort of uh, special sign if we're not using the advice that the Bible gives here. The more we know God, the more we understand our own hearts, the more we listen to the scriptures and learn from other people and learn from life, the more we will become people who have the wisdom to make good decisions. We will grow wiser over time. That's what we need, not quick fix guidance. The wise and foolish planning and the plan and not the plan. So how does God fit into this? Am I implying that God doesn't guide us at all? Third point and final, uh, God's plans. Have a look at the first two Proverbs. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. And then, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Notice from that first one that the plans of the heart actually belong to us. That means that they are ours and they are our responsibility. We are supposed to make plans under God. Our plans matter. 
They're significant. God uses them. And the way that God works isn't going to overrule that necessarily. But there's a very delicate balance here because we know that our plans matter and we know that God doesn't force us in a kind of coercive way or control us like a puppet master. But it also says that every one of our steps is established by the Lord. You notice that? In our hearts, we plan our course, but the Lord is the one that establishes our steps. Quite interesting. Now, surely that must include the wrong steps. That the Lord is with you, establishing you, even when you make some wrong steps. Now, we really want to know how this works, don't we? Is it a paradox? Look at the next verse. A person's steps are directed by the Lord. How can, can anyone understand their own way? This verse says that our steps are directed by the Lord and that we don't fully understand even our own way. And yet the Bible insists time and again that we are responsible agents and that we should plan wisely. So that raises a big question philosophically. Is God in charge of history and the details of our lives or do we have freedom of choice? Are we responsible? Is God the one who is sovereignly in charge, in charge of everything? Or are we responsible and we have freedom of choice? And modern people have to make that question an either or. They have to have one or the other. But in the Bible, both of them are true at once. <laughs> both are true at once. God is in charge of history. He's overseeing the details of your lives, every step you take. And we have freedom of choice and responsibility. In fact, one of the most classic statements of this, Steve did preach about this in much more detail and much more carefully uh, in, the, in Foundations a few months ago. But I'm going to share this verse again from Acts 2. Peter's sermon, you remember the first Christian sermon? Peter said to the, uh, the Jerusalem Jews, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, you've got to sit with that for a few minutes. Think about it. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and yet you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Which is it? The plan and foreknowledge of God or the actions of lawless men? The answer is, both. It's both. And so, we need to make plans. But here is the greatest comfort that the Scriptures can provide. Chapter 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Now, why do I say this is comforting? Some of you are sitting there going, hold on a minute, this all sounds a bit philosophically funky. The Bible wants to comfort us with this thought. In the biblical worldview, we know that God is all-powerful and all-knowing and infinitely wise and infinitely loving. We know these things. He is perfectly wise in how he loves us and in what he permits into our lives. And no matter what other people may try to do, God's purposes for you will stand. No matter what the devil 
and all the spiritual adversaries in the world will try and do to derail you, God's purpose for your life will stand. It is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You remember the life of Jacob in Genesis? Jacob was known as the one who grasps the heel. He was doing it even in the womb. He's got a twin brother, and he's, the brother was born, but Jacob was grabbing his heel. Literally, it meant he was pulling your leg because Jacob was always deceiving people. He did some terrible things to his brother. He basically tricked his aging dad into giving him his blessing and inheritance of the firstborn while his brother was out in the fields. He dressed up as his brother and put some like, animal skins on his arms because his brother was so hairy. And it made him smell like his brother because his brother was an outdoors guy. And he brought this food that his dad really loved. And he said, oh, here it is for you, dad. And the old man was so pleased with the food. And he said, oh, it's, it smells like you, but it feels like you, but his voice sounds like Jacob. And Jacob's like, no, it's me, Esau. He's such a trickster. He, he lied, he deceived, he caused chaos in his life. He put his family at risk. But he still could not stop God's good purpose. And he eventually became Israel, the ancestor of Jesus Christ, the savior of the world. See, God's good purpose can't be stopped even by your folly and wickedness. Do you believe that this God is all wise and he has a glorious purpose for your life? Then do this last proverb in our series. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. That verse is the greatest cure for non-clinical anxiety that I have ever heard of. Whatever you do, commit it to the Lord. Sit with him and hand it to him consciously, and he will establish your plans. Martin Luther was a great German reformer of uh, about 500 years ago, and uh, Martin Luther, who was a monk, eventually married a nun to quote one of my son's favorite films, have you ever had feelings for a nun? He did. She was called Catherine von, von Bora, and uh, this nun became Mrs. Catherine Luther, and her husband was, was always on the run and being persecuted, and people wanted to kill him. He was living in great danger. He had ill health. Uh, it's a turbulent life, a turbulent life in turbulent times, and she was a terrible worrier. She was a very anxious woman. And Luther wrote to us some amazing letters and I'm just going to read one as we close, because I think it will illustrate what point I'm trying to make. To, this is written in February the 10th, 1546. To the pious and anxious lady, Mrs. Catherine Luther of Wittenberg, my gracious and dear wife, grace and peace in Christ. Most precious spouse, thank you most heartily for your great anxiety, which keeps you from sleeping. For while you have been worrying about us, we were almost consumed by a fire which broke out near the door to my room in the place where we are staying. And yesterday, doubtless as a consequence of your anxiety, a stone almost fell on our heads and all might have crushed us like mice in a mousetrap. For several days, little pieces of plaster were drifting down from overhead in our room and when we summoned help and the ceiling was examined, a stone fell down which was as long as a large pillow and more than a hand's breadth wide. Think of what might have happened as a result of your blessed worrying, if the dear angels had not intervened. I fear that if you do not stop worrying, the earth will swallow us up and all the elements will fall upon us. Is this the way in which you have learned the catechism and understand faith? I beg you to pray 
and leave the worrying to God. You are not commanded to worry about me or yourself. It is written, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. And similarly, in many other places. Thank God we are in good health and spirits. Commit your ways to the Lord, whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in all the changing scenes of life, in trouble and in joy, you are our constant guide and companion. And we thank you that in this journey, you give us many wise counselors and you give us a community to help us and comforters and friends and that you send your own spirit to walk alongside and enlighten and illuminate your word for us. And we want to grow to become wise people. So we commit the last eight sessions to you and ask that you'd help us as a church to become known for wisdom and show each one of us how we can grow, especially in whichever area we need. And Lord, tonight, for those here who are struggling with anxiety about some course, I do pray that they would know how to commit to the Lord whatever they do because you will establish their plans. Amen. Amen.